It's basketball season and we've got you covered. The Ringer NBA show breaks down the latest and greatest around the league five days a week. Check out The Ringer NBA show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid. Featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Au contraire, you're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. Joining me today are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Say hello, Ben. Hello. We're going to start the show today with uh, Zach and me griping about our online trivia league. You <laughs> might remember about a year ago, I wrote about a... Uh, online trivia game called Learned League that I'm, I take part in, that Zach takes part in, that a couple of our uh, co-workers take part in. Zach and I take trivia very seriously. Those of you who follow us on social media might remember that we were once part of the fourth best bar trivia team in the entire state of Michigan. Uh, so in this, in the spirit of, of competitive trivia, uh, we had a bit of a surprise this week, a pleasant surprise, when the following question popped up in Learned League. In April 2021, who became the first player in Major League Baseball since Babe Ruth 100 years prior to start a game as pitcher while also leading the league in home runs? I sincerely hope anyone listening to this podcast knows the answer because, you know, drum roll, please. It's essentially. Ben, well, no, let's let's have Ben okay. take a, a crack at this. <laughs> ben, you know, hmm. you're a smart guy. You're erudite. <laughs> but as far as I know, you're not as big a trivia nut as the two of us. No, so not nearly. Is this within but... your your capacity to to answer? I think I could have gotten this one. Yeah, I, I think. Is it Shohei Otani? Is that who it is? It is indeed Shohei ah, Otani. All right. And I'm... the disappointing aspect is you can see the percentage of all of the participants who get each question correct. And only 40% knew the answer to this question, which essentially is, have you heard of Shohei Otani and know anything about him? And I think, you know, I am normally kind of hands off with conversations about is baseball doomed? But I was really worried when I saw uh, such a low percentage knowing who Shohei Otani is. I was really excited because uh, one of the coworkers that that plays with us is Allison Herman, our TV writer, who knows absolutely fuck all about sports, and she got this right. And so I like I Kate charged into our our podcast Slack channel, telling Zach like this is baseball is back. Look at Otani's cultural penetration, and uh, six out of ten nerds don't know who he is. 
Yeah, I don't know if it's better or worse to bring up your trivia league than it is to bring up your fantasy league, but I will allow it in this case because it allows us to talk it's, about Otani for a second. It's better to bring up the trivia <laughs> league. The trivia league is like, an, there was a, an article in the New Yorker about this that actually cited my article from last year. So, you know. Yeah, there are articles about fantasy sports too. I don't know that that, that, that makes it work, but I think it is, uh, it's a little more relatable, right? Because anyone can play along if you're sharing a question from your trivia league. And I'm not really a, a trivia guy. It just makes me feel bad about all the things I don't know. But yeah, in this case, speaking of feeling bad, I have so little to feel good about in my life and just give me this. Am I well, the only one who thinks 40% is actually good? I mean, guys, he's like in his third year in the league. He missed an entire year because of Tommy John on the pitching side. This is this is pretty good, Zach. Come on, you got to lower your expectations. I was expecting am like I, 30. Am I the only one who thinks 40% is good? It's the most baseball answer. <laughs> yeah, right. It's baseball, Even right? Even Ty you, Cobb only got 36.7% yeah. <laughs> exactly. in Learned League. Yeah. Yeah, you succeed three out of 10 times. You're a Hall of Famer, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Although I always say it should be four out of 10 times, right? You need the high on base percentage. But still, I wonder what this would have been say a month ago, if you had asked this question, whether it would have been a lot lower than 40%, because it has been sort of notable over the past few weeks to see how Shohei has kind of become a crossover figure in the sports world, at least among other athletes, which I think is one of the most fun aspects of following him is not just how much he impresses me, but how much he impresses other people who are actually at the pinnacle of their sports. So when you see like JJ Watt and Kevin Durant and all these people in other sports expressing their amazement at Otani, let alone, you know, all of the players in MLB and opposing players who tweet things about him. So I kind of keep hoping that if he stays healthy, if he keeps this up, if that kind of concerning velocity loss the other night was nothing substantial or lasting, then I hope that that penetration does increase. Like he's already an international celebrity of sorts. And if he keeps breaking baseball in this way and succeeding at such a high level, I hope that does become a story, like the kind of story that if I weren't a baseball fan, I would pay attention to the way that even as a non-fan of most other sports, I still sometimes drop in to pay attention to like Tiger Woods or Steph Curry or, you know, Serena Williams or or anyone who's kind of like doing so something that no one else is doing. baseball athletes you've name checked so far. How many more do you have? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is uh, he probably needs a playoff appearance to significantly boost that percentage percentage any well, higher and that's bad that. news. yeah, yeah as, as we'll talk about later on this episode uh the angels are not looking so hot right now no yeah it's fun to it's fun to be excited about stuff it's fun to watch other people be excited about stuff even if the the thing they're excited about now is tall jake cronenworth you know um oh, wow. I, <laughs> what do you think, think the, the level of jake cronenworth awareness in your trivia league is very small <laughs> All right. Speaking of cultural penetration, uh, let's talk about a news story that broke on Tuesday. I was like checking the clock to make sure that to to see if it was breaking late enough that the queue wouldn't have a chance to talk about it, leaving this topic for us on Friday. Tony La Russa is back in the news. Uh, and this is you, know, you want to talk about the the pitch that your Mercedes hit Uh hit out off of Williams Acidio. This topic for us is a meatball right over the middle of the plate. Uh, so Zach, why don't you tell us or tell the listeners in case anybody doesn't know 
what's been happening for the past few days. And Zach, I'll please sub- drop at <laughs> least as many F-bombs during this uh, rant as as uh, CC Sabathia did on R2C2 this week. Yeah, I don't know if I can do it uh, that level of justice to summarize pretty succinctly, because then I imagine we all have have, if not Sabathia level, at least pretty pointed thoughts about this whole boondoggle is the White Sox were up by a lot of runs and the Twins put in Williams Estadio to pitch as they have done before, as a lot of teams do when they're down by a lot of runs, they'll put in a position player and your mean Mercedes had a three Oh count uh, and then swung at a meatball hit a home run. You know, the White Sox ended up winning by one more run than they would have otherwise. And Tony La Russa decided to scold his player publicly, say that there would be consequences, um, which may or may not have included spanking. Uh, he, then the following day when uh, the twins threw behind Astadio, Tony La Russa then said, like, I was okay with how that was handled, not standing up for his player. Other White Sox have seemed to stand up for Mercedes far more than their manager. And it has now been on, what, day five of this conversation? And there seems to be a new element added every single day. I'm frankly kind of surprised it's gotten until Friday and we still have new attributes to talk about. This really has something for everybody, or at least something for all three of us, because not only is this the silly unwritten rules controversy of the week, it's something that I think we all saw coming uh, when the White Sox put Tony La Russa in charge of a team with Tim Anderson and guys like that on it. Uh, and also, this controversy involves both Lance Lynn and Williams Astadio, because <laughs> Williams, Ast- Williams Astadio, of course, uh, gave up the home run on a 47 mile an hour. What do you even classify that as? Do you, Gasolina. I don't, that's what he calls it. Uh, yeah. Okay. Is that what baseball savant <laughs> calls it? I guess is the question. Um, and then Lance Lynn came in and said he had no problem with, um, with Mercedes swing there. First of all, because it's a ridiculous premise, but also because he said once a position player comes into pitch, there are no rules, which I know he didn't mean it in the Charlie from It's Always Sunny kind of way, but that is an interesting premise to think of uh, bringing in a position player to pitches as instituting a the purge-like state of anarchy (laughs) in baseball. I think this is something that we ought to interrogate as a way to bring fans back. Yeah, I was surprised that we had this conversation again in a sense like I, I thought this might be behind us, but then I didn't think that once Tony La Russa was hired. <laughs> like if you had asked me a year ago, I would have said maybe we are just kind of collectively moving on from the, you know, running up the score conversation or the unwritten rules. But then, of course, it became incredibly predictable that something like this would surface once La Russa got this job because he made these same kind of comments about Fernando Tatis last year. He made these same kind of comments when he was hired as White Sox manager and said he was all about sportsmanship and running up the score, et cetera, et cetera. So if anything, it's surprising that it took this long, I think, for some controversy like this to surface. Like, at least it hasn't been about bat flips or excessive celebration or whatever that that we kind of feared that would be the worst case scenario. But the fact that he said these things or that he thinks these things is the least surprising aspect of this story. I think what intrigues me the most is what this means for clubhouse harmony or or the lack thereof with the White Sox. And then also whether that actually matters, because like in some ways, Larissa has not done a great job in, you know, his new role. In other ways, like, hey, the White Sox have the best record in the American League right now. So when everyone's like fire Larissa, fire Larissa. 
it's either, I guess, just an acknowledgement that managers don't matter that much because we have this team that is succeeding at at this level. Like it's just like in baseball, that's the way managers are. Like there are certain times where a manager seemingly can sort of sabotage a team and, and there's a lot of dysfunction. And then there are also times where no one likes the manager or no one likes a particular player. The players don't like each other and the team continues to win. And the White Sox, despite suffering these major injuries this year, have been just fine. So I wonder, will this continue to simmer? And then if they do run into a rough patch at some point, then these tensions, which are clearly there, whatever Tony Russo might say, will boil over? Or is it just something that we will argue about on social media but won't actually affect the team that much. Maybe it's like a Herb Brooks style Olympics <laughs> Olympics I, thing I, where, you know, Tony LaRusso will will anger every player right. in the clubhouse yeah. so much that they will bond together with a common enemy. Yes. The takes the takes feed the wolf, Zach. Uh yeah, I saw that suggested and one i think that's horseshit because he was talking about this to no to anybody who would listen last year when the tatis thing was happening right. um but I don't know, as far as the, the manager doesn't matter my rebuttal to that is maybe if rick renteria was still in charge of this team they'd be six games up in the division instead of two and a half so you never know where the dominoes are going to fall i think it is instructive that immediately you saw uh lynn sort of soft Lance Lynn, who's like not a particularly outspoken or controversy seeking person at all, you know, sort of soft peddling his uh, uh, his stance on the on the matter. And you, you saw stuff, you know, what uh, what Tim Anderson and Mercedes and and Evan Marshall were doing on on social media as this was sort of erupting. I think this is the sort of thing that you can tolerate as long as you're in first place and we'll see what happens. You know, what do we see with the Nats when things started going south with with uh, when Matt Williams was the manager? I think that's the, yeah. the parallel we ought to look for. Or Bobby Valentine with the Red Sox or, or something. Valentine, but yeah. yeah, there are those cases. I, I think the issue of the running up the score, like it's not as if that specific circumstance arises that often, you know, how many times per season do you have a blowout with a three Oh count and a position player on the mound? Like this is not something that's going to come up every day, but I think the bigger issue is just the lack of protection of his player. Your mean Mercedes, yes, who has been hundred percent such a fun player and also such a, a good player and such a, a huge cog in the White Sox lineup this year when they've lost Luis Robert and they lost Eloy Jimenez and suddenly your mean Mercedes comes out of nowhere and is mashing all season. So he's been really important to the team. Not that that should even matter in in how you protect your player or not, but it does kind of matter in the clubhouse dynamic of it all. And you have Larissa publicly throwing him under the bus, calling him clueless, saying he made a mistake. And it's not just about missing a sign or ignoring a sign or whatever. It's obviously about the unwritten rules. And and you have Larissa apologizing to the twins, basically giving them tacit permission, more or less, to have some sort of reprisal here. And then when they did it and threw behind him Tyler Duffy, he said, yeah, I have no problem with how that was handled. Even though Duffy and Baldelli were ejected by the Empire, they've since been suspended. Like, clearly there was a problem with throwing at or near someone, especially with the number of hit-by-pitches and and serious hit-by-pitch-related injuries we've seen this season. So it's just like, how can you play for this guy 
knowing that not only does he approve of uh, disapprove maybe of your style of play, but that he doesn't have your back. So it, it just seems like that's something that could continue to boil over. You know, reasonable people could maybe disagree about whether it's appropriate to swing 3-0 when you're up by 11 runs against a position player or whatever. But I don't think reasonable people could disagree about whether you have to have your players back or basically side with the team that is throwing at your player. Yes. I think that's, there are a bunch of different layers. There's the the culture war aspect. There's the fact that, that all these home runs count the same when your me Mercedes is going to negotiate his next contract or go to arbitration or whatever. Or the fact that the the game is changing, but the reason that that I'm personally annoyed by it is that what you said earlier, Ben, we put this to bed years ago. Like, watch waking up to this take is like opening the newspaper and, and reading an op ed that says. Iraq has WMDs we need to invade. Like it's that it's that far in the in the past and I can't believe that we're still giving a position of power to to somebody who who's that far behind the times. But that point about what does it say to the players that the manager not only doesn't have their back, not only isn't letting them do their job, it he's he's litigating it in the press first. Uh because it's one thing if this conversation happens between Mercedes and LaRusa behind closed doors, it would still be stupid, but it like there's a way to handle this. And uh, I just can't imagine going to work for somebody who's publicly undermining me for being good at my job. And you know, what I said at the time is I don't think he does this if if Jose Abreu is the one who hits that home run. I think it makes it a lot easier because it's a rookie and I'm interested to see when they, if and when things do start to go south for the White Sox, what some of the veteran players in that clubhouse end up doing. Do you think this is kind of taking a, a side angle, but we've seen some conversation this week about, well, if you're going to get upset about trying to continue hitting when you're up by a lot of runs, just install a forfeit rule. And this isn't uh, an uncommon suggestion when it comes to these conversations, when it comes to like, video games I play with my brothers, right? Like growing up, we'd say, if you go up three goals in FIFA, then the game's over. And I wonder if you think a forfeit rule... You had a rule... much more... You had a much calmer video game relationship with my <laughs> brothers than I did. <laughs> Do you think that if such a rule were actually installed, it would ever be used, though? Because I feel like that in, in itself would you know, have an unwritten rule that you have to play the game to its conclusion. So I think as long as we have people still arguing about this specific aspect of it, we're never going to escape because all of these proposed solutions essentially boil down to to just accept it. You don't need a rule. You can forfeit now. Like what you need is a norm. And not to well, I'm not the only person who's suggest this, but in curling, it's acceptable once you're far enough behind to um to to uh concede. Like the men's gold medal match at the last Olympics didn't go the distance because the USA USA was so far ahead that Sweden didn't think they could come back. And like the scoring's different and the culture of the game is different. But I think that, but that speaks to the point that you're making is the culture of the game is such that, that you keep trying no matter what, unless it's in this arcane and ever changing set of circumstances that allows old people to bang the grievance hammer. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if I would like it better if there was a a forfeit norm, let's call it, uh cuz I think it it would 
impact the statistics of the game. I, I don't know. It, or it might just t- uh, take getting used to. Yeah. Um, but I, I, that would solve a lot of these problems. I would dislike that a lot less than I dislike the automatic runner rule. So I wouldn't be uh, nearly as against yes. it. I think that you're right. It, it's all about the, the norms of the sport and what is considered acceptable, you know, sportsman-like behavior to, yeah. to use TLR's term. But I think the fact, if you had an explicit rule, it, it really would kind of give permission to people to do that. Like, yes, you could technically forfeit now, but it's not really a, an option that, that you're provided based on the score or the situation. So if you kind of codified it in that way and sent the signal that, yes, this is uh, acceptable and allowed, I think it might help with that being embraced. Like we're already seeing norms change when it just comes to position players pitching. I mean, that has changed a lot where they had to actually have a rule about that to restrict position player pitching a little bit just because it's become so common where, you know, several years ago, it was kind of this quirky thing that happened every once in a while. And we were all excited when it happened. And now it happens so often that it's it doesn't even rate our attention, really, unless it leads to some kind of unwritten rules blow up. So I think that in itself just shows that uh, teams are more willing to throw in the towel, just, you know, not pulling their players off the field, but pulling their like pitchers off the field and using a position player. Cause like in this game, I think the twins had five pitchers left, you know, it's not like this was the 18th inning, not that we see 18th innings anymore, but it's not like it was the 18th inning and every pitcher was used. And so you had to put Williams Estadio and it was just, we'll put him in because we're not going to come back and we don't want to waste an inning from a real pitcher, even even though, you know, we have however many they have, 14 or whatever pitchers uh, in on the staff now. So I think you might see some of acceptance if you sort of sent the signal that this was OK or even encouraged. And I guess the other solution is just don't hire Tony La Russa types again, <laughs> uh, because as you both said, we thought this was behind us. And it's not all old guys being mad at this. I mean, Steve Stone, who is one of the White Sox broadcasters and himself an old timer uh, tweeted, I think yesterday, uh, we pass the torch to a new generation. They are diverse. I say, let them play as they see fit. The game is in their hands. We left a great game, make it better. So maybe it is just Tony Larusa and a very small Stone, Steve yeah. group. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Steve Stone, right? He almost played for Tony Larusa the first time Larusa was a White Sox manager. I think Stone left a season before Larusa took over, but the argument is definitely one-sided at this point. In a way, it wasn't you know, eight years ago when Jose Fernandez had a brouhaha uh, in Florida. And I think we have definitely seen the arguments evolve. So there's a reason I think we're having kind of this frustration at having to rehash those arguments because we thought it was behind. Yeah. And it's not just TLR in fairness to him, I guess like the twins weren't thrilled about this either. Seemingly Rocco Baldelli, who's 39 years old and William Sestadio, who is 29 years old, didn't seem thrilled about this either, which I'm trying to, I'm trying to pretend was not the case because I love William Sestadio and I I don't want to think of him being on the upside, upset side of a, a unwritten rules debate, but you know, it's a little more pervasive. Like Larusa was certainly the most outspoken and aggrieved about this. And because he is on the White Sox side and he was more down on it than anyone else, that was obviously notable. But it is, uh, I think, something that, you know, it's just like when you're in competition and you're getting your ass handed to you in a game, 
and then someone hands your ass to you a little bit more, like, I understand why you're not going to be thrilled about it. It's just a question of like, are you going to actually throw at someone over it or say that they were wrong to do it? And I would hope not. And when we saw the Tatis incident last season, like initially there was some of that on both sides with Jace Tingler and, and Chris Woodward, but then the reaction to that was so swift and one-sided that I think they realized, okay, we're not going to double down and triple down the way that Larusa did. We're going to say, eh, actually, it's fine. Like the game is changing, whatever. And and Woodward came out this week and had some great comments about how he played the game this way and he was taught to play the game this way, but his thinking has evolved. And now he tells his hitters to swing on 3-0 and it's silly to tell them not to compete. So like minds can change, but I think just given the competitive tensions and the adrenaline and all of that, and the fact that like, you know, coming up through Little League or whatever, maybe you do have mercy rules and there are kind of conventions and norms about not embarrassing your opponent. You know, it's like once you get to the big leagues, like these are big boys and they can handle it and they're played a lot of money. So they should just be allowed to play, I think. But I understand why like they're ruffled feathers from time to time. It's just like not your own manager just making you out to be right. the, the you know avatar of all that is bad with the game. And again, that's, that's really what this is about. I'd say about 85% of, of uh, play the game the right way kind of stuff is not from people who are mad about the norms of the sport being violated. It's from people who are mad that they're losing. And so right. I do have, yeah, I've, I've got some patience for, for that. Uh, even if, if that anger is sort of misdirected or, or, uh, or articulated clumsily, but it just goes back to like, the the TLR like we're on your team kind of thing like how do you, <laughs> like I just and the the fact that I don't think the twins I don't think Tyler Duffy throws it at Mercedes the next game if if TLR doesn't say anything about this and that's the point I was going to make I'm not yeah. sure if this continues to escalate because it didn't seem like Baldelli or Duffy were like really that pissed off about it it felt perfunctory um, so it's just bizarre, I guess, from a content perspective. Uh, it's good for us because I've had a lot of fun this week uh, talking about this. Um, another thing that's happened this week and another thing uh, that, uh, man, I was going to nail this segue and Bobby's going to make fun of me. And OK, the heat was too hot. You know, he got the fastball middle middle and he just swung over it. Yeah. Coming out of my shoes, swinging at a transition. Okay. Speaking of showing up your opponents, uh, we've had not one but two no hitters this week. We talked about this on the on the show last week, and I thought we were going to put this to bed. And then Spencer Turnbull and Corey Kluber both put a bunch of hitters to bed uh, on back to back nights. And now there's discourse. And uh, Ben, you wrote about well, you didn't write about the discourse, but you wrote a big article with a bunch of charts and stuff <laughs> examining the the rise of the no hitter. Uh, so has your opinion changed since the last time we talked about this? I guess that's the first first thing to, to get no, to. No, it has solidified, I suppose. It, it's funny, as I was writing that article, I went back to articles that you and I actually wrote in 2018 when there was uh, briefly some no-hitter hysteria, right? Because as you may recall, 
early in 2018? I actually don't. I have no memory <laughs> of writing about well, this. Well, that was when you wrote about uh, like moving the mound back a little bit, I think, and uh, some right. of your solutions to what was seemingly a no-hitter epidemic. At that point, there had been three by pretty early in May, and there were like you know no-hitter bids every other day. So I wrote about it then. And there were no no hitters for the rest of that season, which I think is something we should keep in mind. Like just because we've had six so far doesn't mean that we're going to get 20 or even that we're going to get 10. You know, sometimes they come and go and they cluster kind of unpredictably because it's a, a blooper here or a bleeder there that does or doesn't get through. That's the difference between a no hitter and not a no hitter. And I do expect offense to pick up as it seems to be already a little bit, but like Obviously, you want to not just totally wipe away the accomplishments here and and pretend as if these weren't good performances because, of, of course, they are impressive performances. And I'm happy for them that they're happy, like Spencer Turnbull saying that this was, you know, the best night of his life and how wonderful it was. Like, that's great. And uh, happy for him and his family and his friends and his fans and Tigers fans who don't have a whole heck of a lot to get excited about lately. So that's good. But it's also part of these larger trends that we've all been writing and talking about for years and years. And so my position that I took in this piece was kind of what I said on the podcast last year is that I want more. Just, you know, give us the weekly no-hitter for the rest of the season until it becomes so commonplace that no one's paying attention anymore because I want that to bring attention to the fact that the league is not even hitting 240. And obviously, when you have no one getting hits, then you are more likely to have no hitters. Like It's not really a, a in-depth, sophisticated analysis here. Fewer hits makes it easier to get no hitters. So, you know, maybe your mileage may vary on kind of when you reach your saturation point. And obviously, like, it can still be fun for fans who are watching that game or fans who are in the ballpark on that night. But it certainly lost a little of my of its luster for me, just like back to back nights this week. And it was almost strange. It was like Thursday, just waiting to see who would have that day's no hitter. And no one did. So, hey, we got through one day without one. They've all been extraordinarily well-pitched games, which is maybe a silly thing to say about no-hitters, but, you know, where were, where are the days of Edwin Jackson's no-hitter with eight walks and 149 pitches or, you know, a two-strikeout no-hitter? I think Francisco Liriano's uh, only had two strikeouts back a decade ago. Every no-hitter this season has been under 120 pitches, has had at least seven strikeouts, and has had no more than two walks. So it's not like these are the kinds of no-hitters where we might argue about if it was a well-pitched game. These have all been extraordinary games. And yes, they've all been the same three offenses, and maybe it's just a couple terrible lineups dragging down the overall league in this perspective. But I, I don't think any of these pitchers have ever really been all that close. We haven't even seen like the one great defensive play in a lot of these performances. It's just been general like strikeout, normal ground ball, easy fly ball. We haven't seen the Dwayne Wise catch or the Steven Souza catch that is so memorable about the the Purely and Zimmerman games respectively. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. And I think there's a reason for it. A, it's because of pitcher dominance to some extent, but it's also because you don't get to throw a no-hitter in 2021 unless you are incredibly efficient <laughs> because we don't see those pitch counts anymore. I was thinking about this with A.J. Burnett's no-hitter, which... Uh, yeah, that's the name I was going to bring up too. Nine walks, right? For 
that was 20 years ago this month. And right, the nine walks, of course, and actually only 129 pitches, which is less extreme than I remembered it being. But even 129 pitches would be pretty unheard of in 2021. So if A.G. Burnett is pitching that game today, I don't know that he gets the chance to go nine, right? So like, I think there have been only 13 nine-inning complete games pitched this season, and six of them are no hitters. <laughs> so like, the only way that you get a complete game these days almost is if you get a no hitter. And the only way you get a no hitter is if you're mowing people down efficiently enough that you're not running up high pitch counts. Like there was some question with Turnbull, who has the the high pitch count this year among the no hitters with 117. And when he allowed the the leadoff guy on in the ninth inning, it was like, uh oh, like they're gonna pull him probably. And then he quickly got out of it. But you know, it was like, how much longer are they gonna let him go? Because I, I think part of that is just the general crackdown on pitchers and trying to protect pitchers in vain mostly. And some of it is maybe just like you know a little less deference to the individual accomplishment and to the no hitter now, where we've seen enough guys pulled, you know, after six no hit innings or, or whatever that that's kind of become more of the norm now that you don't just let people throw an unlimited number of pitches as long as they're pursuing that. So that does stand out to me, although it it also makes it more surprising that we haven't seen a perfect game yet because so many guys have come close, most notably Means, of course, who was, you know, the the drop third strike away. In AJ Burnett's no-hitter, he threw 65 strikes and 64 balls. (laughs) How many... uh pitches did Tim Linscombe throw in his Tim Linscombe was was at 148 yeah (laughs) I was gonna like the whole thing on Linscombe was was that he dating back to his college days was that he was just indestructible could throw a billion pitches and then had his career cut short by injuries so maybe there's only so much truth to to that reputation um I'm surprised not that we haven't seen a perfect game but that we haven't seen a combined no hitter because those yeah. have been getting more common as the years have gone on. And, you know, Corbin Burns got pulled or no, he got he never mind. He had a lot of home run by the time he got pulled. I don't know. Barrios if that's something, was in that same game and he was pulled. With he a, was pulled. A no hitter. Okay. He six. was pulled with uh, with the no hitter intact. Um, maybe the twins couldn't finish that off because they were too busy throwing at your mean Mercedes. But I don't actually, you know, who gave up the hit? It was, was it, it was Duffy. Duffy. Yep. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh. Yeah, I I wonder if that's where the the weird no hitter is going to go. Whether it's going to be the the no hitter that 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 famous Astros combined no hitter, the one the Phillies pulled off a couple years ago with Cole Hamels and Deekman and Ken Giles. Like if that's where those nine walk no hitters are going to go, or if the fact that every reliever in the major leagues now is Jose Alvarado, just a grip it and rip it guy, that you're you're not going to be able to string together six innings of a starter. And three guys coming in who don't do something stupid. So I don't know. I I think if they're if they're surprised, it's not that that there hasn't been a perfect game. It's that we haven't seen a, a combined no hitter yet. Because I thought that's that's where we were going. Uh, because pitch counts have been such a a big issue in in baseball over the past decade. And I'd say I don't. know. At the same time, there's I'm almost relieved that they're letting guys like Carlos Herdon and and Turnbull who might not ordinarily get the rope to throw like 115 pitches in a game uh finish these off um so i don't know we'll, i'm sure we'll we'll see a combined no hitter by the by the end of the season looking at uh stat head right now besides the Barrios 6 inning 
no hitter when he was pulled. The only other pitcher to start a game and go at least four innings and then be pulled while allowing no hits was uh, Tyler Molly. Uh, went four innings of no hit ball back in a game in early April. And he was really wild. He threw 92 pitches over those four innings before he was pulled. So maybe that's what we're talking about in terms of like, if you're at 92 pitches through four innings, there's absolutely no way you're going to, to go the distance. So the Reds pinch hit for him in the top of the fifth and then pulled him. So like, that's one example. We haven't seen many more yet, but I'm sure they're, they're coming. It wasn't that long ago that you got to pitch until you gave up a hit, and it would have been I don't know, not like we want to see anybody throw 170 pitches in a start, but <laughs> I, part of me misses it. It is disappointing. Like According to Stathead, the Edwin Jackson game is the most recorded pitches in a no-hitter, and it is disappointing that we don't have records for all of Nolan Ryan's, for instance, because I am curious how high... Actually, do we have for all of Nolan Ryan's no hitters? No, we that don't. That wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Okay. Well, the thing about Nolan Ryan is like he'd have games where he'd strike out 18 and walk 10, but he tended not to be throwing no hitters in those. I think most of his no hitters were relatively sedate in terms he of He had walks, in right? 1974, he had a 15 strikeout, eight walk, no hitter, and we don't okay. have a pitch count for that game. <laughs> he might have gone over 200 in that game, just looking at those totals. How much of... There was like there was concern trolling, I guess, that when Babe Ruth came in a hundred years before the term concern trolling was even invented, but he started swinging for the fences. Oh, it's going to ruin everybody's uh, it's going to ruin everybody's swing because they're all going to try to uppercut instead of hitting line drives. And like, I wonder how much of a legitimate gripe there is about Nolan Ryan sort of breaking the curve for people who aren't physical freaks who can throw 105 miles an hour, 200 times a game uh, for 30 years. Like how much did he break the, I mean, there was that when he was uh, the team president of the Rangers and they were trying uh, to stretch out all their starters. Like, I wonder if there's actually uh, damage that's been done by people trying to, to emulate Nolan Ryan. We do have pitch counts, I guess, for his last two, the last two of his seven no-hitters, and uh, I don't think they were super extreme. So he had a a no-hitter on June 11th, 1990. That was uh, two walks and 14 strikeouts and a mere 130 pitches. And then his final no-hitter on May 1st, 1991. That one was only 122 pitches. He walked two and struck out 16. So, yeah, I'm sure earlier in his career, he must have had some <laughs> some real Ironman outings that I wish we had the numbers for. They do have, like, estimated pitch counts for, for those years sometimes, but it's nice to have the hard number. It's, I would say, like, those most of those old-school no-hitters, I guess people were seeing less, fewer pitches per plate appearance. So even like longer outings they'd still they still wouldn't be that far over 100 pitches but i guess nolan ryan was the exception i guess he's the answer to the question of what would happen if you dropped a modern pitcher back into the 1970s um also a legendary like six degrees of kevin bacon guy because there's the i mean he debuted at what 1966 and uh in the Robin Ventura fight game, his catcher was Pudge Rodriguez, who caught Steven Strasburg when he was a rookie. And so you can get to like half of baseball history just just through those three guys. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. 
if you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes, you know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away. Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. Mike Trout has strained his calf. And uh, for a guy as big as him, like we shouldn't call it a calf. We should call it like a steer or something. We should have a different name for that muscle. Uh, he's going to be out uh, for the next couple months. Zach, you wrote an article about this in which you called him injury prone. And what the hell, man? Just look at the numbers. This is the fourth time in the last five seasons that he has suffered a long-term injury. And I think the the positive note is that they have all been to different body parts. It's not like he has a recurring injury to one particular body part, but I think it really is beginning to matter. The focus of my piece was not really about the Angels playoff hopes this year, although those have taken quite a hit and uh, will maybe prevent Otani from reaching 50% popularity in our trivia league. But Mike Trout over the last uh, half decade. Now, even if you think he'll return at the front end of the estimated time loss, if you think he'll return after six weeks of absence in the last half decade, he will have missed 24% of possible games played and compare that to the first half decade of his career when he missed only 2% of games. So that is really adding up. And if uh, I, I ran some calculations for my piece and found that if you add up all of the games he's missed to injury and the hundred plus games he missed because of the shortened schedule last year, that is now more than 60 home runs and about 10 war loss that he would have otherwise accumulated over that span. And like Mike Trout is still the best player in baseball, even with all those injuries, even with all that time missed. But when you get up into the historical leaderboard territory, those 60 home runs and those 10 war really start to matter. Career home runs through the age of 29, where Trout is now, he'll probably finish the season uh, in around 11th place all time. If he hadn't been injured, he would be up in the top two or three behind just A-Rod and maybe Ken Griffey Jr. So that's a, a pretty big distinction when you're up in the rarefied air that, that Trout finds himself. 
Then I can hear you rubbing your hands together as you prepare the, does this mean that Otani's the best player in baseball now? <laughs> so just go ahead. Just- <laughs> well, he is, uh, it's not even entirely clear that he is the best player on the Angels. I suppose that is uh, Anthony Rendon erasure, who often gets neglected when we have these Otani conversations. He I gets agree. neglected in general, but hey, he's one of the best players in baseball too. But yeah, it is sad. I mean, I enjoy watching Mike Trout, obviously, and following him from day to day. And with him, he has become so synonymous with war, like stat and player are just like melded into one entity. And so I think we measure his greatness that way. All the fun facts are constructed around war, and that is a counting stat. And so as great as he is, whenever he is on the field, when he's playing 130, 140, or 114 games in 2017, that's going to make a, a difference between, you know, when he was uh, playing 157 to 159 every year from 2013 to 2016. So when you look at his best WRC pluses, his best hitting years on a per plate appearance basis, they are 2017, 2018, and 2021 thus far. And those are all years where he missed 20 or, or more games. And so that costs him from having, you know, the the super high, like record challenging single season war marks, which uh, I think we would all like to see him take a, a real run at those. And maybe he's running out of time to do that while he is performing at this incredibly high level. But also, as, as Zach said, you know, it, it will have a bearing on his career mark and, you know, whether we eventually perceive him as the best player in baseball or how we rank him compared to Mays or Aaron or Bonds or, or other legends, you know, will he be in that sort of stratosphere? And I guess it concerns me because, you know, he's turning 30 on August 7th, right? So he's going to be returning probably right around his 30th birthday. And so is this a product of aging? Is it just a fluky thing? Is this a preview of what his 30s will look like? Because, you know, it it depends. Like, whether he is an all-time great on a career level depends, obviously, on, on how he ages and whether he's one of these players who's, you know, their 30s is almost as good as their 20s or, or if he really tails off, as some players have in the past. And so if this is a, a sign of things to come, that is kind of concerning to me. So I, I hope it's not, obviously. Yeah, I've. I mean, once you turn 30, just this is part of the deal that one part of your body just starts hurting all the time for no reason. So I expect that Mike Trout is going to have to deal with this superhuman as he, as he is. He's still only flesh and blood. Yeah. I'm, so I, I was also, you know, the way that he hurt himself this time it it seemed so innocuous like i don't know if you've seen the footage but it wasn't like man it yeah well i'm sure he prepares but like i don't know look at his conditioning like is he doing everything that he could to stay healthy are the angels the team that is best equipped to help him stay healthy i don't know but it's one thing if he gets hit by a pitch and he's hurt or if he's sliding and and breaks something you understand how that happens in this case like he was on second base with two outs and there was a pop-up and he was basically just jogging out the inning, you know, like he, he kind of ran from second to third, but 
hardly at full speed. And it was just kind of this freak thing where all of a sudden he's pulling up and he's on crutches. And that almost concerns me more than if it were some kind of contact injury. Like, I guess it could just be a fluky thing where you put your foot down wrong and and it just happens to happen. And you don't have to be someone of advanced age for that to happen. I mean, we saw Luis Robert hurt himself seriously, just running to first base. Like it happens. But the fact that he wasn't actually busting it on this play that kind of worries me more he was busting. well he he was yes but you know like if you're not going all out and you're hurting yourself then is that more concerning than when you're hurting yourself at max effort is that more predictive of future injuries i don't know but it, it just goes to show like you can never count on anything. Like no one is ever safe ever on a baseball field with the injuries we're seeing these That's days. That's not true. People are safe on baseball fields all the time, perhaps <laughs> less so now yes. that fewer balls are being put away. Okay, I'll stop. Zach, I have advocated on this podcast for more action on the base pass. I think the minor league experiments to increase stolen bases are great. I want to see those adopted. I want to see more doubles and triples. But on the other hand, if it would prevent players like Trout from being injured, maybe we should enact wiffle ball rules where it's just, you know, if you hit it to that patch of grass, it's an automatic double and then we'll have ghost runners. And then Mike Trout will never need concern himself with running. He can just continue to hit dingers and we can enjoy his rise up the the career leaderboards. It, it It's a, a real bummer. And then just from the Angels perspective, obviously they're well back of a Houston team that is playing really well. They're well back of an athletics team that is not playing as well, but still has uh, an above 500 record. And it definitely seems like the angels are going to miss the playoffs once again. And that is now seven years in a row since their last division title. I guess Albert Pujols will return to the playoffs now that he has moved across the city to the Dodgers. But according to Fangraph's odds, the angels are down to a 10% chance to make the playoffs. And that seems kind of high depending on when Trout is to return. We know that Albert Pujols now is not the blitz for those How I Met Your Mother fans who are out there. Uh, I think we would be remiss if we talked about such a prominent injury without calling on someone who's returning to the podcast this week. Dr. Robert Wagner, uh, if you were Mike Trout, what would you have done to avoid this grade two calf strain that's going to put the best player in baseball on the shelf for two months? Just got to drink more water. You know, stay hydrated. It's very important for your muscles. They contract more when you're not hydrated. I think that Trout needs to drink more water. Doesn't he have like a Powerade sponsorship? I think that that's not doing enough. I think it's, it's a, what's the name of that, the stupid energy drink that all the hockey players drink? It's like BioSteel or something. You said so many things in there that I wouldn't know the answer to, nor I don't think Cram or Ben would know the answer to. It's stupid energy drink, hockey. You lost us all. He does have some sort of athletic beverage sponsorship that I may have ruined in case they ever want to sponsor uh, sponsor our show. I'll, I'll recant this if the money's right. All right. Let's uh, get past this and get past that preposterous suggestion that Zach, said, that, uh, Zach just had and wrap up the show with the unnamed weekend preview segment. So this is a big weekend. This is Rivalry Weekend. <laughs> wow. That was Rivalry great. Rivalry Weekend. Oh, you could have a future in doing voiceovers for, I don't know, 
what that would be for exactly. <laughs> but monster trucks. Yeah, that's that's what I was. Baseball for, yes. is dying, but Grave Digger <laughs> Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> can you do hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show in that way so I can just and play that? Welcome to the Ringer MLB show. Could he put no, Trout in a monster truck to get around the bases? He won't strain his calf that way. <laughs> Mike Trout's from Vineland, New Jersey. That man was incubated in a monster truck. <laughs> Come on. All right. Ugh. Cubs, Cardinals, Dodgers, Giants. We've got the Eddie Vedder Derby, which you guys told me was a thing last year between Seattle and San Diego. Uh, the Pinellas County Derby between the Dunedin Blue Jays and the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, the Battle of Texas with the Rangers and the Astros and the Cradle of the Revolution rivalry matchup between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Boston Red Sox. So, Zach, do you are you taking one of these off the board or are you going with something else? I'm really interested in Dodgers Giants. The Dodgers now with Albert Pujols, as I mentioned a moment ago, which I think says more about the state of their injured roster than about Pujols in particular, although he did hit a home run last night. Uh, the Giants are two games up on the Dodgers now, and I am not at all worried about the Dodgers. I still think they're heavy favorites to win this division. But if the Giants take this series and continue to maintain their lead, uh, you know, by Memorial Day is kind of when I start paying attention to the standings. And maybe that won't be the case with a team I think is as dominant as the Dodgers. But it would be interesting if the Giants maintain this lead for another week uh, to the end of the month, see if they become active in in trades this this summer to upgrade and try to keep pace with the Padres and Dodgers. I think uh, Bauer versus Wood is a very fun matchup between uh, two pitchers who have arrived with very different contracts but produced similar results so far. So this is the series I'm most watching this weekend, you know, in between watching round one of the NBA playoffs because this is a great sports weekend. Yeah, this is a matchup of the teams with the two best starting rotations in baseball this year, at least according to Fangraphs were, which we saw at least one of those coming. I don't know if we saw both of them coming, but the Giants, the Padres, and the Dodgers have the three best records in the National League now. So we knew that this race was going to be good. And Zach, you wrote about like whether we were going to have a, a historic NL West race even coming into the season. But we thought that was going to be a two-team race mostly. And it's turned out to be a three-team race that the Giants are leading right now. So that has made it even more fun for me, I think. And the fact that they're doing it a little differently. Like there are a lot of things that the Padres and Dodgers have in common and how they've kind of gone about building their teams. And then you have the Giants who I don't know how they're doing it exactly. And they're super old and uh, much more surprising. And yet they've uh, done it and they've kind of deserved it to this point. So that has been a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that too. Reminiscent of 2015 when the three best records, not just in the National League, but in the entire majors belong to the Cardinals, Pirates, and Cubs. And then the Pirates and Cardinals played in the wildcard game. The Cubs won and then beat the heck out of St. Louis in the NL Divisional Series. And I think, you know, we could see if the Dodgers, for instance, win the division, San Diego, San Francisco in a wildcard game. And then the winner of that against the Dodgers in the division series would be quite a fun little interdivisional rivalry. Yeah, I when the Giants were first getting out to the lead in the NL West, I was kind of irritated. Like, I just wanted them to get out of the way and let the, the good teams duke it out. But the longer they hang around, the more interesting it becomes, the more the Giants are are the Pittsburgh Pirates, as you said, of the uh, 2021 NL West. And yeah, 
you know, as someone who's bumping up against that geri- geriatric millennial uh, line, it's good to see the likes of Gerald Dempsey Posey and Brandon Belt and Brandon Crawford and other people not named Brandon uh, really showing out for the Giants. I think this is as much as I listed like seven different matchups off the top in the monster truck voice. Uh, this is the the matchup of the weekend, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And you forgot the Masson matchup. Orioles Nationals. Masson! <laughs> That's a rivalry too. And Steven Strasburg is returning on Friday to face the Orioles. So I will be paying close attention to that, even though the playoff implications of that matchup cannot quite compare to uh, to Dodgers Giants. So, yeah, I don't know if uh, any of them rises to that level for me. Like, you know, Cubs and Cardinals is, uh, you know, it's a classic, but uh, not yeah. quite as as compelling. More historical, yeah. But mm-hmm. Nats Orioles, this one's for all the crab cakes. What have we done? What have we created here? You la- This is the first joke you've laughed at in five years. <laughs> Do you so have one of those gonna... for every series this weekend? <laughs> this one's for all the crab cakes. No, I don't have. A... <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think the the voice was going to go over that well, so I didn't prepare jokes. Um, all right, this feels like a good place to end the podcast. Uh, be sure to follow us on Spotify at Ringer Baseball. You can get. Us every Friday, you can get baseball barbecue every Tuesday. Thank you, Zach. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. You're welcome, and thank you. Thanks to Dr. Robert Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to your mean Mercedes, Spencer Turnbull, Roll Tide, and Shohei Otani for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh, my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford, or its affiliates. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln in the all-new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid, featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates.